Well, praise the Lord. You may be seated. It's starting to sound like normal in here now. Have you noticed a little shift in the environment? Uh, you guys are singing out and attendance is uh, you're coming back together again. And it feels right, doesn't it? feels like it should feel. Last week, Pastor David uh, spoke to you about the difference between a Christian and a disciple. Uh, if you are new here, you may have never, ever heard anybody talk about this because it's just not talked about much. But uh, the word Christian is only found three times in the Bible. All three times it's used in the New Testament. It's the only place you find it. All three times it's used. It's used as a derogatory term where non-Christians are kind of mocking the followers of Jesus. They were first called Christians at Antioch. Peter said, you know, if you suffer as a Christian, don't, 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 don't despise it. It's okay if you suffer as a Christian. Let me ask, ask you a question. You, you guys have watched the History Channel and seen Gladiator. and uh, What does suffering as a Christian mean in the first century? You drawing a picture in your mind right now? What suffering as a Christian might look like in the first century? Uh, that's pretty rough. Now that's the way Christians used in the Bible. Three times it's used that way. Where those who are not Christians are persecuting those who are followers of Christ. And they use this term Christian to describe us. Now we just wear it like a badge. Amen? So you call us a Christian? Well, listen, I'm... I'm humbled and honored that you would ever use the term of Jesus Christ to label my life. Praise God. Now that's what we just wear it, okay? Uh, much the same way with the cross. Anybody have a cross necklace or cross earrings or cross tattoo or, you, you know, uh, we embrace the cross. Listen, the cross in the first century meant death. It was a way to torture someone. It was the most cruel and horrible and humiliating way for Roman culture to uh, punish someone who dared defy the empire. Your crime was hung above your head, written out where everybody could see why you were being humiliated and tortured. And it was a threat to the world, don't mess with Rome. Well, this will happen to you too. Why is this guy being crucified? He's Jesus of Nazareth, calls himself the king of the Jews. You say, what's the big deal? There's only one king around here, and his name's Caesar. That was the big deal. Remember what the people who delivered Jesus up said? We have no king, but exactly the issue that's being put forth. How dare you defy the empire? Well, look, we just, now when you see a cross, do you think horrible, disgusting way to die? Or do you think, there's my salvation? There's my, so the instrument that my Savior embraced and carried to Golgotha in order to liberate me and give me eternal life. We just embrace it now and to wear it as a, a piece of jewelry or, or an emblem on our body that we're not ashamed of, even though uh, there was a time when it was a shameful thing. Now, David talked last week about the difference between a Christian and a disciple. Christians found three times in your Bible. The word disciples found about 300. So I'll let you judge for yourself what the first followers of Christ there called each other. Disciples was the term. And there's a big difference in this modern era in being a Christian and a disciple. And let me just think for a minute. A Christian is somebody 
who subscribes to the teachings of Jesus. Is that fair? Christian is someone who goes to church at least twice a year on the big two, right? Christmas and Easter. Uh, a Christian, as the words used in American culture, uh, might uh, be associated with someone who receives sacraments from time to time. Christian might be a person who prays. Is that fair? Now, I'd love to fascinate you with all the modern statistics, but I don't have time for it this morning. But all the modern statistics are trending that people who call themselves Christians don't even have a Christian worldview. Does that make sense? People today who call themselves Christians don't attend church regularly, don't take the sacraments, don't believe in the sanctity of life, don't believe in a man-woman marriage. Views have shifted. So Christians becoming more and more ambiguous of a term as history goes. And I could prove it to you a million ways, but again, time's not my friend this morning, but I could take you to, gosh, let's just find a country where, I could take you to Italy or Spain or the UK. These are Christian countries, okay? They're so Christian that they have state religions historically, and the state religion was Christianity. And we could walk through the neighborhoods of Spain or Italy or Atlanta or Fort Worth or Knoxville or Nashville or Little Rock, and we could knock on the doors of houses and say, hey, we're taking a survey. What would you label yourself? religiously listen you have a hard time finding people who are not christians i'm a christian you know what that means absolutely nothing you cannot infer from that that they understand the teachings of christ that they are on the mission of christ that you can't infer anything from that now it's now just a it's like saying i'm a republican or a democrat or an independent almost what does it mean i'm not really sure what it means disciple however has a very specific meaning and pastor david did a brilliant job last week of talking you through the hebrew jewish israeli understanding of how you got an education and how you found a mentor and he agreed to accept you and take you on that journey of discipleship and the dust of your disciple maker would be upon you for years as you followed him to become like him now today what i want to do is i want to discuss the ministry of jesus having david's already laid the foundation of why christians different than a disciple and while we're focused at cornerstone on being disciples and make disciples and we'll keep talking about it for a few weeks it'll all start falling into place but i want to focus today on the ministry of jesus and see how our present ministry compares to his ministry in other words, uh, if we want to get this thing right, whatever we're going to do in 2021 needs to look like what Jesus did. Because he modeled for us what to do, so we don't have to be confused about what we're supposed to do. So we're just going to kind of just keep thinking about what does my church life, what does my walk with Christ, how does it compare with the ministry of Jesus Christ? Now I'll be honest, I've been transparent as I could be. I, my father was a pastor, my a Baptist pastor, my uh, great-grandfather was a circuit-riding Methodist pastor 
And so I've got a little bit of uh, clergy in my, in my family tree. Uh, and uh, having been around religion all of my life, certainly, I've confessed to you often, and I'll state it again this morning, the model that was given to us in this present generation, the church model, the ministry model, the way the Christianity model that was given to your generation well, it was broken. That's the only way I know to describe it. Broken is the right word. They're not bad people. They led us to Christ. We memorize scripture. We learn to worship God. But something about the model we were given was broken. And I learned late, late in my ministry and late in my walk with Christ that the model was broken. I learned late. I'd already been pastoring 15 or 20 years. I learned late that the model was given to me didn't need to be replicated. It needed to be fixed. It needed to be reformed. And I don't know why the Baptists in the South have had such a struggle with this, or the evangelicals in the South. For that matter, the Methodists, the church, I don't know why we're struggling with this. Christianity, as you look back in history, has had to go through many reformations. Many reformations. Because sometimes you've got to change the oil and do some maintenance and rotate the tires, things don't just stay the way they are. They need to be updated and fixed as they decay or as they deteriorate or as some things begin to change in culture. I learned late. And so late in my ministry, I've tried to help us all uh, have that reformation here at Cornerstone. Uh, and I've, I've really invested a lot of my energy late in my ministry to make sure that I give a better model to David and Jeremy and to Chris and to Josh and to Skyler and to Spencer and to all of the young ministers and to Erica and to Erica and to all of the young ministers coming up behind us now as the older people in the church. Guys, the older people in the church. Look at me. I feel I'm now I'm now the older people in the church. That's so weird. But I'm doing everything. If you just say, what is our crazy pastor up to? Not only are we going to fix the model, we're going to try to get it into the hands of the next generation so that we give them a better product to run forward with. Does that make sense? That's what we're trying to do. And, and I have to keep saying things out loud. Some are remedial. But discipleship is not a course. And I watch some of you. You know, we're all friends on Facebook here. And, and uh, I'm watching you post. And I'm watching how your extended friend group that I don't even know are responding to your posts and it's very clear from the things you post that your friends don't understand what discipleship is because i'm reading the answer you know uh, barbara posting who discipled you and i can see from the answers they have no idea really what we're talking about as far as a biblical model of discipleship discipleship is not sunday school discipleship is not another Bible study per se. It's not a 15-week course, and I tick the lessons off. Okay, now I'm, I got a certificate. You know what I'm saying? It's not like a vacation Bible school. You walk across the stage, get a certificate and a handshake and a gold star, and now I'm a disciple, right? It's not like that. And, and, and I think this is what confuses us. You say, well, I've been in church 20 years. Discipleship is not a term we bestow based on time served. You can be a spiritual infant and been in church all your life. Discipleship is, is not based on how long you've been saved. Discipleship is not getting more biblical information in your head, although it involves 
getting some biblical information in your head, for sure, and hiding God's Word in your heart, but, but just attending another Bible study. Listen, all my life I've watched Christians by the thousands just go to the next greatest Bible study. And yet the churches are in decline. You say, why? Because nobody's having babies. And I don't mean physically. I mean nobody's reproducing another batch of, of Christians, of disciples coming up behind them. And that's why Christianity is in decline. Discipleship is a way of living out your life. Discipleship is a, an approach, if you would. It's a method. It's a mindset. It's a heart change. It's, a, it's an approach to living out your Christian faith as you become transformed and as you follow and pursue Christ. You know, discipleship's a little tough to define. It's, it's, a, it's a mindset. It's a different approach. It's a different method for living out your life most christians method are come to church on sunday agree with what's being said go home and live your life that's the general approach to christianity discipleship is not that discipleship is come to church so that we can have a pep rally so that we can now go out and every person in the church has their own ministry making disciples out in the community and that is by the way the biblical model that's what you see on the pages of matthew mark luke and john so let me see if I can bring it a little closer to you now. Since the mission of Christ's church is to make disciples for Jesus Christ. That is the mission of his church. And since you are the church, not me, not this, since you are the church, making disciples then is your mission. Now you can still be an accountant, a school teacher, and a police officer and be a disciple maker. Matter of fact, those will all just merge together very beautifully and very nicely. And God will judge, use your education and your family background and your, your vocation. He'll blend it all together and show you how to make disciples. Just, it'll work perfectly, I promise you. But since you are the church, what is your plan for making those disciples that Jesus wants you to make? Let me make it a little more personal. Let you think about this question. How? Are you going to do in 2021 what God expects you to do, which is make disciples? I hope that challenges you, because you should be feeling right now, well, maybe I don't know how I'm going to do that. That's why the church is broken, because the church hadn't prepared us to know the answer to that question. So what we're doing here is we're reforming the church, basically, so that everybody who attends Cornerstone has exposure and access to the discipleship process as Christ did it so that you will understand let me make, make, make it a little personal here I'll use Chris because he's down front here Chris here's how here's how Chris doesn't have to say I don't know what to do Chris you just do what I showed you you do what I did with you with someone else it doesn't need to be any more complicated than that Jennifer, who, who discipled, who walked with you? Laura Long, just do what Laura did with you. Maybe do a little better job, but do, do what Laura did with you. And uh, she loved you, and she prayed with you, and you memorized scripture together, and she was there for you. Now, I want to just put this out there, because there's a little bit misnomer about this, even in our own community here. It doesn't mean you have to be BFF with your disciple maker. It doesn't mean you, you go bowling and putt-putt and play golf and, and, and go to the gun. It doesn't mean you spend, it's not like that. Now, that may develop. That may develop. But it, may, it doesn't have to be like that. 
maybe it'll become more clear as, as I talk. It's a way of following Christ and becoming like Christ. And it's what Christ expects every follower of his, every believer is expected to bear fruit. Every believer. You say, well, I have, you know, a, a sixth grader, seventh grader, eighth grader, ninth grader who's already received Christ, they've already been baptized. You should be preparing them to bear fruit also. Because that is Christ's mission for their spiritual life. It's his mission for their life. How are you going to do what God is asking you to do? Well, the question may be better stated is this. How do we make disciples? How do we make disciples? The short answer is we're going to make disciples the way that Jesus did. As best we can figure out, okay? Now, we've spent years collectively in this room. We've spent years looking into the Bible to gain an understanding of what Jesus was teaching. We've spent a great deal of time, the people in this room, trying to understand and embrace what Jesus was teaching on the pages of the Bible. Today I'm challenging you to discover how Jesus made disciples. I'm not asking you just to say, yeah, I agree with his teaching. I'm asking you to look at the Bible and say, okay, I see how he did this. I need to do it the way Jesus did it. Let me see if I can say it another way. The modern church in Europe, Asia, South America, America, uh, North America, the modern church subscribes to the message of Jesus, yet divorces themselves from the method of Jesus. The modern church subscribes to the message of Jesus. You ask any Christian you know, do you agree with Jesus? Do you agree with the teachings of Jesus? Now anybody who calls themselves a Christian is going to say, yes. You ask that same person, tell me who your disciples are. They're like, what? Well, I teach a Sunday school class and I've got some, well, maybe, but you're misunderstanding. What's happened, and here's what's broken. Is somewhere in history, they kept passing the model and passing the model and passing the model. And we began to think that being a follower of Christ was just about saying, I agree with love your neighbor as yourself. I agree with thou shalt not kill. I agree with do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. I agree with there is a God. I agree with there is a heaven. We thought Christianity was just about agreeing with Jesus. And receiving him as our savior. No, it's a little more complicated than that. It's about receiving him as your savior, but also your Lord. Or your king, however you want to say that. Your sovereign, which means you'll do what he asks you to do. When you have a king who's sovereign or a lord, you say, yes, Lord. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll surrender to your will for my life. We thought God's will for our life was to church on Sunday. And then just not kick our dog or yell at our wife and... Not steal from our employer. That's what being a Christian is about. No, it's a little more complicated than that. Here's what it's about. It's about receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. And now trying to become like him. And letting the Holy Spirit and somebody speak into your life. A human voice also. That will help you become transformed to. You see, we don't do good with sermons. We do much better with pictures. And what we need is somebody to show us what it means to love your neighbor. Now, I know you can look at Jesus in the Bible, and that's good. But what Chris needs is he needs somebody to walk with him for a year or two to show him how to love his wife 
to show him how to love his children, to show him how to love his neighbor, to show him how to trust God with his gifts, his tithes, his offerings, to show him how to pray. You know the best way to teach Chris to pray is not to give Chris a book on prayer. The best way to teach Chris to pray is to say, Chris, come here, let, let us pray. <laughs> That's what the disciples said. They came to Jesus and said, teach us to pray. He said, well, here's Billy Graham's book. Read that, we'll talk about it later. No, he said, get down on your knees right now, guys. Our Father, which Arden just showed him how to pray. He prayed with them. Because we do much better with living examples than we do with messages and sermons and lectures. That's what discipleship is all about. Let's begin this morning, because I'm already falling behind, by looking at what kind of leader Jesus was. And what was his approach to leadership. Uh, I'm going to ask everybody to take out your phone. Go, go, go. Come on. Take out your phone. And I'm going to ask you firstly to put it on silent mode. Thank you very much. And, and then I'm going to ask you to open up your texting app. And, and I'm going to ask you to text your answers in. Whether you're in person, wonderful, beautiful crowd this morning here in the house of God. Or whether you're watching uh, remotely this morning there in your living room. Or on your best boat, whichever it is. And uh, get your phone ready. And I'm going to ask you to text in your answers. we got the number here that you're going to text to. The first question I'm going to ask you is this. To really understand discipleship and how Jesus made disciples, you've got to understand Jesus. So the first question I'm going to ask you is, what was Jesus like? Now, before you text in your answer, let me give you some parameters. I know that Jesus is the Son of God, and you know that too, right? Let me say another way. Jesus... God in a man's body. Let me say it another way. Jesus is God. <laughs> Jesus is the second person of the Godhead, which means he is God. Jesus is God. Get that fact. And I'm not asking you to articulate that fact this morning. I know Jesus can do miracles. He can raise the dead. He can walk on water. He can heal the blind. I get that. And you know why he can do that? He's God. And I'm not asking about that part, that aspect of Jesus. Here's my question to you this morning. As a human being, not unlike yourself, as a human, as a person, what was Jesus like? And I'm going to ask you to text in one word, characteristics of Jesus. In one word, what would you say, as a man who lived in first century Israel, what kind of man was he? What was he like? What's a characteristic of Jesus? Jeremy, I know you're in the room somewhere. Where are you? Hey. <laughs> are you in the room somewhere? Yes, yeah, I'm looking right at you. Oh, there you are. Sorry. Yeah. I, Hi lights there. are so bright, I can barely see yeah. his but Chris's head down here. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. So as they text, you're going to get 100 answers right now. Oh, so many, yeah. Are they coming already? Oh, yeah. Okay, so we've got, yeah, I'll just read some on. Uh, Hands-on, intentional, personable, compassionate, a teacher, builder, inquisitive, comforter, loving, relational, focused, loving, light, fun, a leader, accepting, an example, measured, perfect, passionate, a servant leader, uh, generous, I'm refreshing, fun. Oh, we've got, oh, we've got the online fun, people Fun, I like fun, Jesus. Fun, teacher, oh, leader extraordinaire, okay. wise, a warrior, etc. Okay. Now, it's interesting, and Jeremy, we will don't, don't somehow preserve that and don't clear it, okay, because I want to sure. talk to you about this later. Uh, 
we, we go all over the world teaching. This is one of the questions we ask people, Christians all over the world. So it would be interesting to kind of capture these answers and, and uh, use it as a bit of research this morning as we know hundreds come in right now. So when you think of Jesus from what you've read, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you say, I think Jesus is, I guess one of the answers I heard the most, loving, kind, yeah. compassionate. What else should Jeremy, you just about to say something. Oh, I was agreeing with you. Yeah. Say, say again. Loving, kind, compassionate. Loving, kind, compassionate, courteous, approachable. We get a lot. Intentional, we get a lot. Uh, okay, that's the kind of human being that Jesus Christ was. So to be a Christian, now I'm going to use, it in, use that word because that's the word we use. To be a Christian means to be Christ-like. That's your understanding of the word, to be Christ-like. So cornerstone to be like Christ means to have the attributes of Jesus Christ manifest in your own life. And so if somebody would say about Jennifer, what's our teacher like down there at the high school? She's loving and kind, a little bit tough, and compassionate. And, and they would begin to describe her, hopefully Jennifer, when people describe our lives. They would describe them in those terms right there. The same list, that's Jesus' list, you know, uh, I, I went down, I'm thinking about hiring Jared for some work, you know, for, for publicity and this and that, and just met with him the other day, and you know, he's a loving, kind, compassionate, honest, hardworking, intentional kind of guy. Listen, <coughs> I'm a proud papa moment right here if somebody ever describes my sons or my family members in terms of Jesus' character, Okay? Or my friends and my disciples and my con or or anybody I know. Listen, you start getting described in those terms, somebody's recognizing you're Christ-like. And isn't that really the goal? I mean, this is what being a Christian is about, the word Christ-like. So if we're going to be Christ-like, then we're going to have to be loving, kind, compassionate, courteous, intentional, you know, uh, leader extraordinaire. I like that. Uh, and you, don't let the word leader scare you this morning. Everybody in this room is a leader. Someone looks up to you, you have influence over someone, whether it's students or peers or, or siblings or, or whatever, <clears throat> you are a leader. Let me just show you how prominent now this thought is in the Bible. In Luke chapter number 6, verse 40, watch what is being said in the Word of God. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be what? Everyone who's fully trained. Everyone who's discipled, everyone who is a disciple, let me say it another way, the goal of discipleship is to be like your teacher. So these disciples, it's Mary's and, and Martha's and, and Peter's and John's and all of these people who are followers of Christ, their ultimate goal was to become like Christ. And you knew they were fully mature when they started modeling spiritual fruit and people would describe them in terms of Jesus Christ. And that's why the world looked at Paul and Peter and those guys and said, these are Christians. And they meant it as an insult. But what a remarkable thing for someone now to say. You mean we are loving and brave and intentional and bold and risk takers and generous and gracious and kind. Yeah, you're a cult, followers of Jesus. You are Christians. 
Well, praise God, because the goal of discipleship is to make everybody in this room like the master. You say, well, I thought it was you're making people like you. Well, this is what Paul said. Paul said, be you followers of me as I am of Christ. At some point, you have to have a human put their arm around you or put their hand in yours and say, you're with me. Come on. I'm with you. We are connected and we're going on this journey together. All right, good, good job, guys. Let's do it again. Second question's coming. Ready? Question two, what did Jesus do? Now, I know Jesus can do miracles because he's God, okay? I'm not asking about that. I'm not asking about that. And I know that's an aspect of his life. I'm not asking about displays of deity right now. Here are the parameters of the question. As a human being, as a man pleasing the Father, as a man making disciples in the first century, as a human being, what do we see Jesus doing on the pages of the Bible? What kind of activities is he engaged in? What did he do? We know who he was now, loving, kind, compassionate, but what did he do on Monday morning, and Tuesday afternoon, and Wednesday? Text in your answer, one or two words, and let's see what pops out here on the other end. Yes, we have, uh, he taught, he showed mercy, he disciplined, he spoke truth, acted on the things he spoke of, he built relationships, brought change, fostered relationships. He invested in his followers, he coached them, he ate with them and shared life with them, etc. So now this is a very different list. Oh, he prayed with them? Oh, this is a good one. He attended parties with them. Listen, the gospel writers went to great lengths. Great lengths. Let me back up. Here's what John said. We did not, in the book of John, we did not record everything Jesus did because there's not enough paper and ink to record it all. But we recorded what we recorded. So you might know that Jesus is the Son of God. You'd have this example to follow and all of this. So John said we didn't write everything down. There's a whole lot of other stuff we could have written down that we experienced along the way. But we wrote this down. So you think they wrote down maybe what they thought was the most important to communicate to you who Jesus was, right? Then why did they go to great lengths? Great lengths. In books that are only 16, 28 chapters long, why did they go to such great lengths to tell you that Jesus went and found Matthew, Levi, sitting at the trees of customs, called him to be a disciple, and then said, I'm coming to your house. And Levi says, I've gathered all of my lost friends. The wine will be flowing. The music will be loud. It's going to be awesome. Jesus, I want you to come and meet all of my lost buddies. And Jesus went and evidently had a great time with all of his friends. Why do the gospel writers go to such lengths to describe to you how Jesus is dealing with people like Zacchaeus, who everybody knows is a con artist and a crook and a corrupt tax collector, a cheat, but you can't do anything about it because the Roman government protects him. And so Jesus encounters him and says, I'm, I'm coming to your house for dinner. That is the sign of friendship. In Jewish culture, if you break bread with someone, you've accepted them. Listen, I've traveled the world, and I've gone to the east, and I've watched them set out cups for you, and a different set of cups for them, 
and a different set of cups for our lower class friends in Asia and pour us different stuff and the cups don't mix. You say, why? Because there is a caste system. There is a culture differentiation. We are here, you are here, and you are down there. Jesus just walked in, embraced everybody, and said, we are one. I'll be your friend. I'll accept you, but I intend to change your life. Salvation has come to this household. And the man says, praise God, I'm forgiven, and I'll restore everything I've cheated. If you've got a claim, come and see me. I'll pay you back exponentially what I stole from you. I'm going to try to make it all right. Who ever heard of such a thing? That's life transformation right there. Someone's becoming like Jesus Christ. So we're to be like Jesus, loving, kind, compassionate, caring. Here's what we missed. We're to be doing the things Jesus did. What things did Jesus do? Well, he ate breakfast with his disciples. They brushed their teeth together. They probably bathed together. This is not America. Go find a body of water. You all get down in it. You scrub, scrub, scrub. Rinse, rinse, rinse. Repeat, repeat. Laugh. Kick the squid out of the way, step on an eel, throw a rock across the lake, poke fun at each other. You know what I'm saying? That, that's what life's like. They traveled together. They went on vacation together. They laughed together. They played games together. And a lot of this I can even fur if I wanted to for 30 minutes with you because I've lived with men. I've traveled the world with men and women. And I tell you, you can load up a bunch of lumberjack, wood-splitting men and put them on an airplane and take them to a country on a mission trip, and they won't be away from their wives for five minutes before they revert to seventh grade boys. <laughs> They'll be farting in the airplane and telling jokes and just acting like complete fools. You say, why? Because that's just the nature of a group of people. Now, I know that about men, and I don't travel with groups of women, but you know what I'm saying? I'm sure it's not much different. So y'all get off on your ladies' retreat, and you, you probably go crazy, you know? I'm just saying Jesus, Jesus is a lot less like the Pope, and I don't mean an insult to the Pope, but he's a lot less somber and serious, and he's a lot more a normal guy, making friends and doing life with people. He went to big life events, he went to funerals, got so moved several times that he just said, I, forget it, rise. And just, rest- here's your son back. I just can't take it. Take another tear. Here, just take your kid. You know what I'm saying? Went up to Lazarus' tomb, wept with the family, got chewed out by the family. Lord, if you'd been here earlier, this wouldn't happen. You're, you're a no-good Messiah. Good night, man. We thought you were our friend. He just let them chew him out. Everybody's grieving. By the way, people who are hurting hurt other people. And when people hurt me, and they do, usually verbally or with their actions, and they hurt you, be slow to respond to that because you know they're hurting or they wouldn't be trying to hurt everybody around them. And they were in such pain, Mary and Martha, they even tongue-lashed Jesus. You say, did he give them a good beat down? No, he just took it. He just took it. Well, there's something that our elders and deacons and spiritual leaders in the church need to remember. You can absorb a whole lot. And you should. You say, what do I need to do with that? Nothing. Nothing. People are hurting. And then Jesus walks up to the tomb with them and raises Lazarus from the dead. (laughs) Don't you know they were sorry they just tongue-lashed him? 
And you don't read that in the scripture, but don't you know? Don't you know Mary and Martha went over there and hugged Jesus' neck and kissed his cheeks? I'm so sorry for what I just said. I'm so sorry for what I was feeling against you. Here's some magic words. I was wrong. I am sorry. Will you please forgive me? After the resurrection, Jesus gathered his disciples. Let me get back to my story this morning. Gathered his disciples, and he said, I'm going to get you. Make sure you guys are focused. I'm going to make sure you understand what you're supposed to do after I leave. Because I won't be here tomorrow physically to, to lead you. You're going to lead now. So he gathered them together. Here's what he told them. Matthew 28. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And here's my marching orders to my people. Go make disciples. That's why we at Cornerstone say the mission of the church is making disciples. Disciples. It's not awesome worship, although we're going to have some awesome worship. It's not the ultimate mission. Fellowship is awesome, but that's not the full goal here. Making disciples. It is clear in Scripture that God intends to use humans to fulfill his mission. If people are going to be evangelized and led to Christ, we are going to have to do it. Does that make sense? We're going to have to walk across the room, shake someone's hand, get to know people, and at some point share our faith with them if they're going to be saved. We have a part to play in this. It is very clear from Scripture and from history that God intends to use people to do His will of making disciples, taking those who've received Christ, putting our hand in their hand and our arm in their arm and saying, come and walk with me for a year or so, and I will show you what being a follower of Christ looks like. I will show you spiritual fruit, love, joy, peace. I will show you compassion. I'll show you the life of Christ. Love your neighbor. I'll show you trust God with all of your increase. I'll show you what being a follower of Christ looks like. And I will do with you what Jesus did with his disciples. Which means sometimes go on vacation together. Go to the lake together. Go fishing together. I would put bathe together in a whole other category now in modern western culture. But you know what I'm saying. But we're going to do things together we're going to be together there is no discipleship without relationships without being together it's not possible to grow spiritually in isolation now i know i'm a bit 30 minutes into the sermon i want you to refocus right now as i move quick it's not possible dismiss this illusion from your christian experience now it is not possible to grow into maturity in isolation that's why jesus developed relationships that's the way you grow people into maturity jesus method for making disciples was to continually walk with those who followed him in a relational environment so that they could experience the life change that he was modeling for he, he get this he didn't just say you need to pray he said let's pray together he didn't just say you ought to memorize this verse. He said, let's memorize this verse together and we'll say it to each other. We'll text it to each other. We'll message it to each other. Let's do this together and I'm going to transform your life. If you're trying to grow into spiritual maturity in isolation, you will discover that it's not working very quickly. If you try to live your life outside of a relational circle with others, here's the byproduct. You get cynical. Now listen, I'm conservative, but listen to what I'm saying. If you sit at home, isolated from other believers, and you just watch Fox News all day, you're going to get angry. 
and you're going to get cynical and you're going to get bitter and you're going to get conspiratorial and you're going to get to thinking minority thoughts that no one's like me no one understands me the world's out of control and there's nobody else you're going to, it's going to mess with your thinking spiritually if you try to grow up in isolation you'll find it doesn't work you get hurt in church you fall out of church guess what you get cynical lonely bitter angry and further away from god and you never grow spiritually and the reason is because you're missing the benefits of that spiritual circle that god wants you to sit in with someone else you're missing the benefits of a spiritual circle you're missing the benefits of being known Deep inside your heart, everyone in this room wants to be known by someone else. Deeply known. Understood. Let me use modern language. You want somebody to get you. The problem is, we've got some shady things in our life and we don't want people to know about those things. I want you to get me and I want you to hear me. Everybody in this room has something you want to communicate. You're like, no, Pastor, I got nothing to say. Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay. I think differently. I think everybody in this room has a voice that wants to be heard. You just don't want to stand here. I get that. This is a whole different. I'm not asking you to be me. I'm asking you to sit at someone's kitchen table or on their couch and tell them what you really think. You have a voice, and you'd like somebody to hear your voice. You'd like to be understood. I'm about a spiritual, relational cohort where, where you will find encouragement and support and growth and acceptance and health and fruit. Now, I can speak for me, and I don't have to speak for you because I know what I need. I'm a mess right now. I'm going to make an intentional investment in the gym this year. And when I say investment, I mean it in every sense of the word. Have you bought a good gym membership lately? I could buy a car for what I'm going to have to pay. <coughs> I could just pay somebody to be skinny for me. <coughs> but I'm going to make a real financial investment. I'm going to, I mean, hundreds of dollars in the Herald budget will be spent this year in a gym membership. Hundreds of dollars. But I'm making an investment in other ways because some of you have spent the money, you just haven't spent the time. There's other aspects to this. You see what I'm saying? I'm not just buying the membership. I will make the time and I will expend the energy and I will go spend, here's the killer for most of us, an hour a day. Susan and I have been working out and we realize that really the way we do it, we're old, we don't move as fast, takes us a good hour and a half, three or four times a week to do what we need to do in the gym who has that kind of time people who are getting fat and unhealthy so so we make a decision you know what our decision is we'll invest the time energy and money that's required and by the way if you're gonna have any life change this year spiritually you're gonna have to make a singular commitment energy i'm gonna have to find child care to get my small group i'm gonna have to yeah yeah i get it i get it and you know what that's exactly what god wants you to do he wants you to make a commitment 
and own your spiritual growth and your spiritual reproduction and do whatever he's required you to do so that you can make disciples. That's what Jesus did. And this is, let me just talk to you quickly before I close this morning about why, why this won't do it for us here this morning. This is not discipleship. And let me talk to you about why it's not, why you need a relational environment. And here's why, because most of us at some point in our life have been injured in a relationship. Most of us have been injured in a relationship where someone said hurtful or embarrassing things about us to others. And it hurt us deeply. And when we experienced that hurt, we closed up a part of our lives and said, I'll never do that again. I'll never be vulnerable like that again. I'll never say I love you again. Nobody's going to say it back to me. I'll never give. Nobody's going to give back to me. I'll never invest. I'll never be vulnerable. I'll never open myself if all I receive is hurt. Or let me give you another scenario. Some of you are just naturally shy. Gosh, that's not Damon. It's not Alan. It's not. We pick the people who it's not. But the people whose names we can't call probably are the shy people in the room. And if you're naturally wired this way, just know that God wired you that way because he wanted you that way. And there's nothing wrong with being that way. God's going to use that in your life also. You, you don't know any sermon Thaddeus ever preached. Bartholomew. These are disciples of Jesus Christ who made disciples and helped turn the world over for Jesus Christ. They were not type A personalities. They were a little more timid personalities. And yet they engaged in disciple making. And what I'm going to challenge you to do this morning is just make a commitment to open your life to a new relational environment and allow others inside the walls of your life and rediscover how refreshing it is to be with authentic people. Rediscover how uplifting it is and transformative to be with people who are real. Because discipleship, let me give you a few thoughts right here. Discipleship creates authenticity. Adults hide their fears. Adults hide their struggles. Adults hide their hurts. Adults hide their questions because they don't want to look silly by asking a question that might be obvious to someone else. Adults hide. And this hiding creates artificial relationships with people pretending to be something that they are not. It is honesty that creates authenticity. If you're going to lead around here, we're going to ask you to be honest. If you're going to be a disciple, we're going to ask you to be honest. And when people are honest with us, it encourages us to be honest back with them. Listen, if just two or three of us are sitting somewhere having dinner, and if I'm honest with you, it encourages you to be honest back with me. If I tell you that I had a broken model of ministry and it took me a long time to get, it, get God to get through my thick head, how to get it right. I'm being honest with you and you can be honest back, back with me. You see, this is what God, all through the scripture, is to, God is asking us to be authentic and open with others, even about our sins and failures. And somehow in the modern church, this got to be a no-no. Especially if you're a leader in church, you can never say, I struggle with sin, and here's the sin I struggle with. That's like a big no-no, but they'll throw you out for that. 
They'll revoke your leadership license for that. You've got to pretend like you don't have sin. Well, what got broken that that got to be the norm? Because the Bible teaches the exact opposite. God tells us to be open and honest and authentic about our sins and our struggles. Let me just show you Proverbs 28, verse 13. The one who conceals his sins, read these words with me, will not, the one who conceals his sins will not prosper. That word that got translated as prosper in our English language comes from a Hebrew word. It also can mean to push forward. Let's read it that way. The one who conceals his sins cannot move forward. You're stuck. You're stuck in spiritual infancy. There it is. Let me read it another way. In the Hebrew, it can also mean to break out. The one who conceals their sins cannot break out. You can't break out of where you are. You're stuck in the roundabout. I went to test drive a car with mom. I almost wrote a whole sermon called Stuck in the Roundabout. <laughs> mom was behind the wheel of some Acura SUV up here, and they had just put in a roundabout we didn't know was there. And she's test driving the car and got in the roundabout, and we just went around a few times. She's like, how do I get out of this? And I'm like, gosh, this is like the Christian life for so many people. They get saved, and they get on the roundabout, and they can't figure out how to shoot off and go anywhere. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? You see, let me, let me ask you a question. Do you have authentic relationships where you can expose your sins and your failures? Now, you may say to me, Pastor, why would I ever do that? Why would I ever expose my sins and my failures to another person when I could keep my mouth shut? Because the Bible says that confessing and forsaking our sins is the way we find grace and mercy and break out and move forward. Otherwise, we are stuck. Let me show it to you again, just so you don't think it's a one-off in the Bible. James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins to God. Yikes! Why would I ever do that? Are you crazy? Do you know what stuff I've done? Do you know what thoughts go through my mind? Do you know where we've been? Why would I ever confess my sins to someone else? Well, let's read it. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be that could mean physically, surely, but it might mean a whole other little aspects on that. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Let me ask you a personal question. Do you belong to a small relational group where in this small little group you can confess your sins to those people? You can own up to it and you know they will pray for you and forgive you and accept you. Because the Bible teaches that that is the only way for you to find peace and joy and happiness and growth and move forward. Otherwise, and for many in the room this morning, it's like you've been carrying bags all your life that you can't put down. You just can't put them down. And the longer you live and the more junk piles up in your life, the bags get heavier and the burdens grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And you've never, ever made a real Christian in a relational environment in a discipleship where you could just say listen I really struggle with there it is and you know all my life I've had this issue and this issue and I've just never known I just don't feel like I'm getting anywhere you're not but we're about to make progress right now because you can set your bags down right now and I'll pray with you and I'll pray for you and together 
in this moment with Christian fellowship, God says you can now break out. You can now move forward. You say, Pastor, you're twisting the scripture. All right, let's see. Galatians 6, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, disciple makers leading relational environments, small circles of fellowship, you restore such a person with a gentle spirit. If somebody's overtaken, that's telling the other side of the story now. It's saying if you're a leader and someone confesses something or somebody's struggling with something and that comes out, what are you to do with that? You're to restore such a person in a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves because you could be on, shoe could be on the other foot. Shoe could be on the other foot. You could also be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. And in this way, you're fulfilling the law of Christ. Let me ask you a personal question this morning. Do you ever share your wrongdoings or talk about the burdens that you're carrying? Do you ever talk about the things that press up on you with someone else that you trust? You say, Pastor, why would I ever do that? People know my family's broken. Let me clue you in about broken families. Everybody's got one. Well, if I did that, Pastor, people would know I'm a sinner. Let, let me just have a light bulb moment with you. Everybody in this room is in the same boat you're in. The Bible teaches that in a relational environment of discipleship, you can find restoration and you can find help. Everyone should, at some point in their life, have that type of relationship with someone. One, two, three people maybe. And if it's just one person, praise God, you've got somebody you can say, I am really messed up here. Would you pray with me? It's a breakout moment for you because discipleship creates safety. This is important. Discipleship, while it requires vulnerability, creates safety. I love reading John's writing. Let me read this. If we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us of all sins. If we say we have no sin... We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If, by the way, I live my life out in front of you, if I communicate to you, ladies and gentlemen, that I don't have sin, I'm not being truthful with you. Deacons, elders, children's workers, discipleship leaders, if you communicate to those you lead by the way you carry yourself and the way you talk that you never struggle with sin, you're deceiving yourself and them. You're not being truthful. And what has happened in the Christian world as we all come into church showing only our best selves on a Sunday morning, we've created this fake holiness so that we fall all the way to church, we get out of the car, straighten our tie and walk in and tell everybody, put a smile on your face so they don't know how broken we are. I'm going to clue everybody in, we're all broken. And we don't have to create a fake holiness, we can be authentic and we can be real. And what happens though is when create, Christians create this fake holiness, we've created an environment where we have to write people off when they sin. Oh. Oh, I didn't know that about their life. Really, they're involved in that? Well, let's just be done with that relationship. 
and we write people off when they sin and then we move on to other relationships and it won't be long until you discover in your new relationships that those people also have sin and you push them out of your life and then you'll get some new friends and then you'll you see the cycle here or you could you could be on the other foot you you people can realize you have sin and they push you out of their lives and they move on to someone else that they think is going to be better and it's a constant revolving door of relationships of no authenticity but when we live in christian fellowship the bible describes something completely different we live in love we forgive one another we create safe environments where we can be real because we know we'll be forgiven we know we'll be accepted we know there is restoration in that environment we can learn from our mistakes we can have those breakout moments we can be free of the past as i said a moment ago we set down our bags let me put it another way in that environment where you're being authentic you can have a new future than the one you have right now i don't know what tomorrow and the next few weeks look like for you and but you can have a whole different future than the one you may be facing in that environment we're set free from our past and we learn from our mistakes how to move forward listen my prayer for you is that everybody in this church would experience that type of authentic relationship with someone and i can promise you here at cornerstone there are people willing to come alongside of you and be that person to you who will hear you and love you and pray with you and help you have those breakout moments in your life you don't need to be perfect to fit in here but you do need to be real to fit in here you need to be willing to be honest and cornerstone is a safe place for very imperfect people when you experience authenticity and you experience safety you're ready for the third step which discipleship creates accountability accountability is essential for growth you can't raise kids without accountability you can't turn them into good functioning adults uh, without accountability in the parenting model take good notes there kids okay you can't raise up spiritual disciples who are mature unless you build accountability into the process and in order to be accountable we have to be real about our personal struggles so many people that I meet are nervously thinking if people really knew me I mean if people really if the truth of my life came out these people would never love me or accept me I want you to know that's not the Holy Spirit telling you that I, I believe the devil wants us to believe that we're the only ones struggling with sin we are all struggling ladies and gentlemen but, but, but Satan plots to discourage us. He plots to isolate us out by ourselves. He tells us we're the only ones like us. We're unique. Nobody has these struggles but us. You say, well, Pastor, I've got some weird... Trust me. There's a room full of weirdos, okay? A lot, I'm just telling you, Satan tells you you're justified in living in sin because of the background you have. Because of what you've been through. Oh, okay, it's okay if you sin in this way you're justified and the results again are christians living in isolation with unhappy lives as spiritual infants with no spiritual fruit let me just ask you don't say out loud please this is not a text in moment but what are you struggling with what are you struggling with is the devil telling you you're all alone there's no one here who will understand 
I promise you there is someone sitting in this room with a similar history to yours. You say, well, I have addiction. I promise you there's people sitting right here who have addictions. You say, well, yeah, but I've had some suicidal tendencies. I promise you there's people sitting right here just like you. You say, well, I've been through a few marriages. I promise you there are people sitting right here who will walk right where you're walking. You say, well, I've served some time. Yeah, there's people in this room, I'm sure, who have paid for their crimes as well. You say, well, pastor, listen, it's the devil that wants you to think you're the only one dealing with what you're dealing with. There is someone in this room dealing with what you're dealing with or has already dealt with what you're dealing with. I can promise you right now in this congregation and sharing your struggle is the beginning of breaking out of your struggle. Read Hebrews 3. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily. Why? It's still called today. Encourage each other daily. You know why God commands us to encourage each other daily? To cheer for each other? To root for our teammates? He commands us to do it daily because God knows we need that much constant care. Daily. Listen, if you've never experienced a, a loving Christian in your life who texts you all the time, every other day, once a week, sometimes multiple times a day, listen, some of the most joys of my life, I get random text. Just get a random text. Somebody maybe I hadn't even had a personal conversation with in a, in, in, in a week or two, just somebody I've influenced or has influenced me, and to get that random text, Pastor, I'm praying for you today. You've made a big difference in my life. You say, well, you're the pastor. Listen, these disciple makers get those texts all the time. And they send those texts all the time. Because the scripture commands us to encourage each other daily. And when I know someone loves me like that, I'll let them speak into my life. You know, what, you know, you'll, you know why you let your parents talk to you the way they talk to you? <laughs> because you knew they loved you. And they wanted the best possible outcome for you. That's why I let people speak into my life in a discipleship way, too, because I know they love me, and I know they want to hold me accountable for the best possible outcome. What I'm asking you to do this morning is I'm asking you to embrace Christ's method. Not just say, yeah, I believe the Bible, I'm a Christian. Go home, live your life, and never, ever invest in someone else's life. I'm asking you to be what the New Testament wanted you to be all along, a disciple of Jesus Christ. Who not only says, I want to be like Christ, loving, kind, gentle, compassionate, courteous, bold, daring, risk taker. But you also say, I want to do what Christ did. I'll eat with people. I'll break bread with people. I'll laugh with people. I'll hit some golf balls with people. Hit some tennis balls with people. I'll go to the gym with my friend. I'll do some things together. I'll laugh. We'll, I'll go to funerals. I'll go to weddings. I mean, does anybody even like going to a wedding anymore? messing with me now y'all know how to take me i've been to a lot of weddings in my life anybody feel like you've been to a lot of weddings you guys at your age group some of you you're just like going to weddings all the time these days but you know those big life events like weddings and funerals and bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs and quinceaneras and all of those kinds of things that are life moments for people you need to go to those you need to be involved in those because those are life moments that you want to share with someone else. I've been to several pinnings where people were 
getting a better rank in the military. It was a big formal ceremony. Got to speak at a few and prayed a few. And I said, why did you go? Because I love the people who were being pinned. It's a big deal to them. What I'm asking you to do is embrace Christ's method. I want to read you one scripture and I'm going to close. And I want you to listen to the words that are being used. John was very close to Jesus, his best friend as a human. And John recorded some words that Jesus said. I want you to listen to these words and I want you to think of how you would describe this relationship. Here are the words of Jesus, John 15. This is my command, love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this than to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you to do, I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I've opened up. Do you see this opening of Christ? I have opened up my own life, and I have made known to you everything I have heard from my Father. You did not choose me. I chose you. I love you. I chose you. I walked with you. I poured my life into your life. I got on the boat with you. We sang. We ate. We toasted. We fished. We skipped rocks, we threw frisbees, we hit golf balls, we traveled together, we went on vacation together, we jumped off the waterfall, we swam together. I poured my life into yours. I chose you. I appointed you now to go and to produce fruit. Here's what's lost in the modern church. God did not appoint me as the pastor to produce fruit for Cornerstone Baptist Church. God chose me to be your coach and to coach you to get in the game, to go and bear fruit for Jesus Christ, fruit that should remain so that whatever you ask in my name, I will give you. This is what I command you, love one another. What kind of relationship does that sound like? Sounds like a good one. I love you, I give myself for you, I lay down my life for you, I invest my life in you. And you know what I want for you? I want you to love each other. You, do, What I did with you, I want you to do with someone else. That is discipleship. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Many of you have already started coming up to the staff members and saying, how do I re-engage? How do I re-engage? I need a group. I need to get going. I need to be in a group. Find me a disciple maker. We're going to talk about that next week, so I'm glad God's working in your heart already. This morning, my big goal is simply this. Would you say yes to Jesus, who said yes to the cross for you? For those of you who are already followers of Christ, you've already received him as your Lord and Savior, would you just say to him this morning, if I haven't told you lately, Jesus, I just want to tell you again this morning, I love you. Thank you for loving me and giving yourself for me. And if I haven't told you lately, I just want to say to you, you are my king. You are my Lord. I say yes to you always and never know 
you want me to make disciples, then my answer is yes. Doesn't mean I don't have questions. It just means with the will and the heart and that the core of who I am, my answer to you, Lord, is always yes, I will make disciples. Or if you've never been discipled, yes, I will be a disciple. I will let someone speak into my life. I will be authentic. I will be open. I will engage in a relationship. I would commit to that, Lord, and I would commit to it because I love you. And it's what you want me to do. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. This is what he wants for us. You say yes to Jesus, child of God. And for those who've never received Christ as your Savior, maybe you've never opened your heart and life to receive him as the Lord and Savior of your life. Let me just remind you in 15 seconds why you should do this. He laid down his life on the cross. He substituted his life and he laid down his life for you. He doesn't ask you to pay for your own sins. He said, I'll pay for your sins. God so loved you that he sent his son and he died on the cross for you. And the Bible says in the book of Romans that we are all sinners and whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're ready to call upon him as your savior this morning, I invite you to pray with me. You don't need to make a speech. You don't need to leave your seat. You just need to, from your heart, call upon Jesus Christ as your Lord and savior. Let me lead you in a prayer. My words are not magic, so make this prayer from your own heart. And just follow this pattern if you can. Pray like this, dear God. You see me here today, bowing before you. Lord, I bow my heart and my head and I confess to you this morning that I am a sinner and I do need a Savior. I can't save myself. And I believe, Jesus, that you are the Son of God. You are the Savior of the world. Jesus, this morning, I'm going to transfer all of my faith to you. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Wash me and cleanse me this morning and put into my account and into my heart your own righteousness in place of my sinfulness. I accept you as my Lord and my Savior from this moment and forevermore. You will be the King and Lord of my life. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name.